Ready? So let's do a short meditation, bringing together some of the points from Bodhicharya Vatara and also from uh, Living with an Open Heart. So think of a situation recently where you uh, were angry or irritated or upset about something. And then uh, look at your response to that situation and and investigate what are were the causes and conditions that uh, made you respond in that way. Not only your emotional response, but uh, if you said and did things, yeah, what were the causes? Uh, and conditions. So don't focus so much on external things in the specific situation, but focus more on internal things. So what were the conditions in your mind that made certain thoughts arise, that made certain emotions arise, that made certain motivations for actions to arise. And in that way, see how all these things depend on multiple conditions. And when you locate a condition, then what was the condition for that condition? Yeah, because even the conditions don't come out of nowhere. And if, in investigating this, there's the thought of, I decided to act this way, then ask yourself, who is that I that made the decision to act in that way? And why did that I decide to act in that way? What are the conditions?
and then think of when another person uh, was upset or angry or irritated with you and do the same kind of analysis. What were causes and conditions in their mind that made them act that way? And again, trace those back. Because it isn't like, uh, you know, one preconception just popped up out of nowhere that set the whole thing in motion. And then from this, draw the conclusion that that things uh, arise due to causes and conditions. And that you can't pinpoint an independent person that is controlling the whole process. And in that case, who is there to be upset with? Or who is there to react to others' provocations? that brings some change of perspective? Uh, it's quite interesting when you try and, and really research 
the causes and conditions for our feelings, for our emotional responses, for our decisions. And then similarly, when we're interacting with somebody, to think that they are experiencing things due to their previous causes and conditions and so on. Mm-hmm. Point of clarification, Venerable, in examining somebody else's when they are angry with you without imputing motivation and trying to diagnose and psychoanalyze them, how would you be able to figure out what type of condition, what, what is it, uh, how, do, how do you do that without, I'm so, I, I impute things so easily. Right. You don't have to c- impute specific motivations on the other person. You can just, you know, see, oh, why are they responding like that? Perhaps because of cultural conditioning, or perhaps because of their family condition, or perhaps because of the philosophy that they've adopted. So you don't have to uh, impute specific things. But the point is to see that uh, with everybody, things are rising due to causes. It's not like, you know, it so often appears to us like, oh, that person is speaking to me that way for a reason, and they have decided to speak to me that way. Yeah. So what do you mean, they have decided to speak to me that way? Who is the they that decided that? Yeah. Can you find a real person there that decided it? If not, what kind of mental factors were involved? You know, you have the the five omnipresent mental factors, and you know, which of the all of those were involved, which of the five ascertaining ones were, what other was there a virtuous mental factor? Were there non-virtuous ones? Were they root? Were they auxiliary? What kind of things were conditioning them? Yeah, because as soon as you think, oh, they made the decision to treat me like that, then we're attributing it to one independent cause, as if that person had no conditioning behind themselves that made them act that way. In the same way that we can see sometimes, like, you know, if somebody speaks to us in a way we don't like, we can see sometimes there's a decision. Oh, they're going to talk to me like that. I'm going to talk back to them just in the same way. So it appears like there's one eye who's making that decision, like an independent eye who's deciding. Well, I'm going to just, you know, okay, they want to talk that way. I'll do it too. And, but then check in, you check in your own mind. There, well, is there some independent eye that, made that decision, yeah, and and what went into making that decision? And then you see a whole bunch of different factors in yourself. So by analyzing it in yourself, then you can see a similar kind of process is going on with the other person. And now I can see, if I'm not able to do that, there's no way that I can generate compassion. You know, because when we say when, when people are suffering, 
we want to generate compassion, but if we've got this thinking going on, there's no way that's going to happen. Right, because we're imputing, you know, an inherently existent person who's doing this on purpose, as if they had control. And if they're doing this on purpose, they don't deserve my compassion. Well, where did that thought come from in our mind? What's the conditioning that we have that people who are rude or inconsiderate or disagree with us or want things done their own way are unworthy of compassion? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, because that thought comes in. Doesn't that thought come in your mind sometimes? Yeah. So where, what, what's behind that thought? Yeah, where did you learn that? Or why, did you, why do you think that? What reasons are they for thinking? Are there any good reasons for thinking that way? They're so uncooperative. Why should I have compassion for them? Yeah. So we're coming back to the syllogism. Consider that person. They are unworthy of compassion because they uh, are rude to me or because they, they uh, aren't paying attention to what I say. And then check it out. Yeah? Make that syllogism. Does it make sense? The why, where did that come from in our own mind? Did it come randomly out of nowhere? Yeah? Is there some little person like behind your, what is it? They used to think there was a little per, Huh? A homunculus, that's right. Be, behind your pineal gland or something like that? Yeah? Or is there uh, the Wizard of Oz behind the screen? <laughs> Yeah, and what is the, what is that thing really? It's it's you know influenced by causes and conditions as well. Yeah, and then you just see, wow, you know, this just goes back. It goes back a long ways, and it goes broadly in a, in a lot of ways too, and it's it really makes a difference when we see ourselves as conditioned beings rather than as a uh, lone, in-control decision-maker. Yeah, because there's no, you know, lone, in-control decision-maker. If there were, yeah, then we could have decided already to become awakened. And that would mean that we would already be awakened. Okay. So the whole theme of this whole section, and it's going to continue today, is really uh, seeing, you know, it's taking anger as the example, uh, and which is a good example, you know, and to see how our own and others' anger it arises due to causes and conditions. Yeah? So there's nobody else to blame outside, and there's nobody else to criticize on our own behalf either. 
Like when people say, well, I'm just such an angry person. Well, who is that angry person? Who is that person who is union oneness with anger? And is there a person that is union oneness with the anger? Okay. So it opens this whole field for questioning a lot of views and assumptions in our own mind. Okay. So, verse 25, all mistakes that occur and all the various kinds of wrongdoing arise through the force of conditions. They do not govern themselves. Okay, that's the conclusion that we want to see. And when things happen in your life, stop. You know, if, if it's hard to do it sometimes in the situation. You're in reactive mode. If you can do it in the situation, great. Otherwise, stop afterwards and like, okay, what was going on here? Yeah. So it arises through the force of conditions. What are the conditions? Things do not govern themselves. Why not? It feels like they do. And then we see that just because we feel like doesn't mean what we feel like is true or realistic or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. We we have a lot of feelings and thoughts, don't we? When we stop and examine them, some of them are totally off the wall. Like this one of this person was rude to me, Therefore, why should I have compassion for them? How does that make any sense in the world? Well, they have to earn my compassion. Well, they are. They're being rude, which means that they're unhappy. Isn't an unhappy person an object of compassion? Yes, but, you know, the people who are worthy of my compassion are the people who are nice to me. Well, the people who are nice to me, they're usually nice because they're happy, they're in a good mood. They don't need compassion at that moment. Yeah, they need the compassion when they're suffering. Okay, then we, then we thought, oh, well, my compassion has a whole lot of strings attached. Yeah, there's a whole application form somebody has to fill out for me giving them compassion, you know? I don't name, okay, address, I don't care. Email, who knows, I don't care about that stuff. Yeah, social security number, and no. I want to know what have they done to me in their lives that make them worthy of my special, overwhelming, benevolent compassion. And they better list those things out. And what they list out better correspond to what I think, to the list I have in my head. It's pretty funny when you think about it, isn't it? It's really funny. Verse 26, these conditions that assemble together 
have no intention to produce anything, and neither does their product have the intention to be produced. Okay, so we can even start out with an inanimate object, okay? Did the causes and conditions of this table yeah, have the intention to produce a table? Yeah, the wood. Oh, no, it wasn't the wood. It was the carpenter had the intention to put produce a table. Where did he get that intention? Yeah. Anyway, the wood didn't have the intention to become a table, and the nails didn't either. Yeah. And anyway, this uh, the carpenter actually could have taken old pieces of material and made this into a table. So it wasn't even like the carpenter wanted it to be a table because it was actually something else before. Okay. And who's the carpenter? Yeah, who's the carpenter that's saying, I want to make the table? Okay. And why did they put that shelf there where I always kick my knees into it? Yeah. They're so inconsiderate. Okay, I know, I know. They're very kind because I got a table out of it. But... I clunk my knees on it every time. And the fact that I clunk my knees is not my doing. It's their fault because they put the shelf where my knees wanted to go. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I wonder if they did that deliberately. Yeah, do you think they did? We know who built this table and who commissioned it. Maybe they were getting even. What was their motivation anyway for offering a table? And you see what our mind does. We go off and we are in la-la land. Okay, so the product, the table had no intention to be produced. Yeah, my knees have no intention to knock into the shelf underneath the top of the table. I have no intention to knock my knees in, my knock, knock my knees there. Why, so why do I keep knocking my knees there every time? I know there's a shelf there. But it's still the shelf's fault. <laughs> there should be a little bell that says, don't knock your knees into the shelf. Okay, now with verse 27, we are getting into the Samkhya's. Okay, so... Um, when I've received teachings on this then they usually give a very overall uh, two- or three-page summary of the whole Samkhya philosophy, which to me is very difficult to understand. So 
And I also don't feel it's really fair to uh, take a, a philosophy that I haven't been well trained in and say this is what these people believe. Okay? So I'm not going to talk about the Samkhya so much as much as take part of what their uh, belief system is and what the Sanskrit tradition then says, if they believe this, then they must also assert this. Okay. So they don't make these assertions that we're going to refute themselves, but we draw the conclusions that if they have these premises, then they, they're going to be forced to accept this. Okay, so verse 27 says, that which is asserted as a primal substance, we'll look at the... Uh, the footnotes here, and then I'll, okay. Okay, so this is Prakriti. According to the non-Buddhist Samkhya school of philosophy, the primal substance is the permanent unlying, underlying material cause and the nature of all objective phenomena. Okay. For further clarification, see page da-da-da and da-da-da, which usually don't make it clearer. Okay, so that which is is the primal substance and that which is imputed as the self. Okay, again, this refers to the non-Buddhist concept of an unchanging, partless, and autonomous self or soul. Okay, so these are two beliefs, you know, that were very prominent in ancient India and with which the Buddhists had to contend when they were, uh, you know, produce, when they were having their philosophy, because they had to refute the, um, the other incorrect ideas. Okay, so primal substance. This time I came supported by a book. So when you ask me questions, that I can't answer, I can refer, I'll read the book to you before, and then you will understand why I cannot answer those questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, some kiss. So, as we said, the primal substance, okay, is... Uh, some substance out of which everything is created and everything has the nature of this primal substance. Okay? So, uh, Chandakirti and Tsongkhapa say, say, if an effect arises from a cause that is identical to it in nature, its arising will be pointless. So the, the primal substance is a cause, but it is not an effect. Okay. Now we know in Buddhist philosophy, if something is a cause, it's also an effect. Okay. Because 
if something is a cause, it's impermanent, it changes, it's going to have some kind of effect somewhere. And if there's an effect, it's produced by a cause, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Okay? So, the Samkhya's ask, on the basis of what reasons can one ascertain that things do not arise from themselves? Okay, so here, here they are explaining a little bit about the Samkhya view. Okay. Okay, so if things, a sprout, for example, so we're in our gardening class, which is the agent in the context of something to arise, originate from themselves, nothing additional is gained by coming into being in such a manner. The reality of the sprout, which is its existence, has already been obtained before at the time of its cause. Got it? Yeah? Makes sense? Yeah. So what it's saying here is you have this prakriti, you know, this primal substance, and it's a cause but not an effect. But everything that exists, all the objective phenomena, everything but the self, which is permanent, come out of prakriti, out of, out of this primal substance, and has the same nature of it, okay, so that means, so the Buddhists say, if that's the case, then the result, the effect, the sprout, already must exist in the primal substance if it has the nature of that substance. And in that case, you know, the effect exists at the time of its cause, and so by being produced, nothing new is gained because the effect was already there at the time of the cause. For example, the seed. Okay. So here the Samkhas maintain there is no denying that diverse causes and conditions bring forth a single common effect. Okay. So they'll say, yes, you know, the, the nails and the, and the wood and the person and everything make the table. They don't deny that. Okay. But for this to be possible, they assert that a single primal substance must pervade all of them. A shared single nature of these causes and conditions. Okay, so what they believe in is, yeah, there's some primal substance that, that is in all of these things. Yeah, so this, you know, there's some similar views around today, even, you know, when, uh, and people sometimes attribute it to, to God, you know, God created everything, so God is in everything. Yeah. Or, or there's some primal substance, ethereal substance that we can't put our finger on, 
but from it everything manifests. So the whole universe manifests from this primal substance, which you can't really say what it is. Hold the questions for now. Okay. So for this to be possible, yeah, for diverse causes and conditions to produce something, they assert that a single primal substance must pervade them, a shared single nature of all these causes and conditions. So all these things have some common nature, you know, that they share. Therefore, whatever is the nature of the cause, a barley seed, for example, is the same nature as that of the conditions, the water, fertilizer, and so on. Likewise, the nature of the sprout and the nature of its causes and conditions are also the same. Okay, so we might say, well, everything's material in nature, but, you know, they're not, still, it's kind of vague. What do you mean material in nature? Especially when you can go, you, material things can transform into energy, and energy can transform into material. Likewise, the nature of the sprout and the nature of its causes and conditions are also the, the same. This they assert to be the nature of all manifestations of phenomenal reality. Okay, there's a footnote here. Let's see. Oh, this is just referring us to a book to understand the Samkhya's better. Okay. So now, since they do accept that the seed and the sprout are distinct, yeah, they do say that the seed and the sprout are two distinct things. They do not say that the sprout arises from the sprout itself. So the Samkhya's do not say that the sprout produce the sprout. Nevertheless, when they assert that the sprout arises from its seed and from its own nature, given that according to them the two natures of the seed and the sprout are the same, therefore it must arise from its own nature and an unmanifest sprout must exist at the time of its cause. Okay? So the, the Samkhya's are, yeah. So they're saying that the seed and the sprout are distinct phenomena. We would agree with that. But they share the same nature. This nature, primal nature, whatever that is. Okay? And so... Because the seed has the same primal nature as, as the sprout, okay, then it must, then the sprout must arise from its own nature because its own nature is in the seed. Okay. 
And so therefore, there must be an unmanifest sprout that exists at the time of the seed because the seed and that unmanifest sprout have the same nature. So when the sprout is produced, it just carries on that same nature. It doesn't have a different nature because they're all uniformly the nature of this primal substance. Okay. So this is, in fact, how they uphold the notion of arising from itself. Okay. So there's the whole refutation of inherent existence where we refute things are, uh, arise from themselves, from other, from both, from causeless, uh, causelessly. Okay. So the, the one of rising from itself is negating the Samkhya view. Okay. So although some elements of Samkhya do not speak in terms of arising, but assert that what was unmanifest at the time of the cause becomes manifest from the cause, the meaning remains the same. In other words, if the cause and result have the same nature, then the result existed at the time of the cause, because that the cause the result's nature was existing at the time of the cause, because every you know it's the same nature. So therefore, the result must be unmanifest, and then somehow it manifests from this primal substance. Okay, so that's what the Samkhyas say. Now here, when it's talking about nature, it, it isn't, doesn't mean nature in the same way that the Buddhists speak of it, like when we say um, uh, product and impermanent are the same nature. It doesn't have that meaning, you know, but it's like sharing some kind of some, something that's out of which everything is made out of, okay? So if we come back to the verse, so that which is asserted as the primal substance and that which is imputed as the self, so the self is a permanent, heartless, uh, independent self. Yeah. So the kind of Atman or soul that non-Buddhists believe in. Okay. So since they are unproduced, they do not arise after having purposely thought, I shall arise in order to cause harm. Okay. So both the primal substance, the primal substance is a cause but not an effect, and the self is neither a cause nor an effect. So they're both unproduced. Okay. So uh, the result doesn't arise after having purposely thought, I shall arise in order to cause harm. Okay. Basically, yeah, what we're refuting here is if there is, um, yeah, if the, there's two kinds of things. If there's a primal substance out of which everything 
comes, then, yeah, then the results already got to exist at the time of the cause. If it exists at the time of the cause, there's no use for it to be produced because you gain nothing new by its production because its nature was already there at the time of the cause. Okay. And if it still needed to be produced when it was uh, already existing there at the time of the cause, if it still needed to be produced, then that cause, the seed, would continually produce and it would never stop producing um, because the nature was still there, okay? Whereas the Buddhists would say, for something to, produ to be produced from something else, that cause has to cease, okay? So what, what they're kind of saying is, there's some, the cause and the sprout, the seed and the sprout are distinct, but there's something in the seed that goes into the sprout. Yeah? Like, you know, the seed transforms into the sprout, so it looks different, but there's something that goes in, you know? Because they have the same nature. Well, if that's the case, then it's going to keep being produced because that that cause has not ceased. The seed has not ceased. Okay? So it's going to be produced endlessly. Or, if you say it doesn't need to be produced at all, it, it, that's not the case that it's going to be produced end endlessly, then, well, it's never going to uh, arise at all, okay? And then you also have this, the self, which is permanent, okay? Now, and the self is the person, the samkhyas say, okay? It's, see, so I, see, this is why it's difficult, because I cannot, I don't see the logic in their philosophy, so I can't explain it properly to you. You know, I have to see the logic. But cutting through appearances, yeah, if you want to learn more about the Samkhya's or what the Buddhists say the Samkhya's believe, it starts on page 158. Okay. In uh, Illuminating the Intent, it's on page uh, 198. The English. Okay. So then, you know, does if a person, if there's a permanent self in the person, let's not stay stuck, stay in the Samkhya view, but with any view that says there's a permanent person, there's a permanent soul, there's a permanent essence of who we are, can that self? make any decisions. Because remember, permanent, if something is permanent, it cannot be uh, influenced by other conditions. It cannot change. Yeah? So if there were a self, you know, that decided to produce things, but it were a permanent self, then 
you would have a permanent self that had to change because making a decision implies change and then producing something implies change. But something that is permanent is fixed. It cannot change. Okay, so that's a real interesting thing to, to really steep your mind in, especially if you've been brought up in a Christian culture where there is a permanent soul and a permanent essence of who you are. Okay, and so does that soul make the decision? Well, we may not say that. I don't know Christian theology, so I'm not speaking for them here. Okay? But if you hold that there's a permanent soul, and then you say, but the permanent soul cannot change, so it cannot make a decision, but there's some kind of mind, yeah, that is somehow... That's the mind is the one that makes the decision, but the mind isn't the soul. Okay, the mind makes the decision. Okay, so if you say that the soul and the mind are two different things, but the soul cannot produce anything and the mind can, but somehow the mind came out of the soul. Yeah, because the, the mind thinks the mind isn't something material. So that must have come out of the soul somehow. So then there's, you're, you're thinking that there's something permanent and something impermanent at the same time. Or so maybe you say the mind is different than the soul, the soul produced the mind, or the soul is permanent, but when it makes decisions, it becomes impermanent. You'll remember Geshe Topke when he was, you know, going through all these refutations in chapter two of Pramnavartika. Yeah, this is the kind, these are the kinds of beliefs and the non-Buddhist schools who hold them, that he, that all these uh, refutations were about. Okay, so the idea is to understand the basic notion of the, the other assertion and the way to refute it, and then look at your own mind and see if you have any of these ideas inside. Yeah? Like especially... When, when you, uh, you know, make a decision, okay, I'm going to decide, uh, uh, you're, you know, uh, not, I'm going to decide to have two bowls of ice cream today, okay, instead of one bowl. Yeah, because it's a decision. You kind of got, well, you already made the decision for one bowl, but that you can blame on everybody else because everybody's having one bowl. But then when you say there's extra left, so I'm going to go get it, I am making the decision. Okay? So to make that decision, that I, that person, has to be impermanent. Because something that is permanent cannot change and go from the state of 
not having made a decision to having made a decision to get two bowls of ice cream. Okay. So who is that I? Is that I that soul? So if, if the I is the soul, then either the I has to be permanent or the soul has to be impermanent, and both of those contradict your basic philosophy. Okay. Yeah. But sometimes, but there's a real me. There's something that's permanently me in there. Yeah, I can feel it. Yeah, can you feel that that permanent me in there? And that permanent me that is the essence of me that never changes, it's the one that decides to get the ice cream. It's the one that decides to tell somebody off. But that would mean it would have to change. So something is not making sense here. Yeah. In the same way, if you believe in a permanent God, God is permanent. Nobody created God. Okay? Nobody created God. God's just been there all along, uncreated. If God is uncreated, then God cannot create because Something that is permanent is not influenced by conditions. And in order to change from one thing to another, there has to be other forces that impact something. Okay. Without other forces that impact something, there's nothing to make it change. Okay. So how then did God produce, or why did God produce? God is uncreated, permanent. But then he had the idea, I'm going to make human beings. Where did that idea come from? Something that is permanent cannot produce ideas. Something that is permanent cannot manifest material objects. So then you're stuck in your philosophy, or you refine your view, as we'll see in Pramnavartika, we saw that the non-Buddhists kept refining their view whenever the Buddhists caught them at some illogical point. And then they, then you might say, but I, you know, God is both permanent and impermanent, just like I am both permanent and impermanent. But something cannot be both because those two co traits are contradictory. Yeah. Something can't be, have two contradictory at attributes at the same time. So then the, you revise it and you say, no, it's permanent at one time and then it's impermanent at another time. So you see it's not at the same time that they're both. First it's impermanent, then it's imp it goes back it goes to be impermanent. And then when it's not creating, it goes back to being permanent again. And then when it creates something more, then it goes, you know, into uh impermanent. Well, 
if something is permanent and not affected by causes and conditions, how is it going to transform into something impermanent? Because becoming something different in nature is going to require causes and conditions. But your permanent God can not be influenced by those, so God cannot become impermanent. But our, our soul, who is really me, cannot become somebody who makes decisions. Okay? So this is what we're getting at. And, you know, you start out doing this on the intellectual level, but then you check your own feeling. Yeah? And there's that feeling in there that there's really something that is intrinsically, inherently me. Or there's really something that God created. There's some other being that created my consciousness and created this soul. And then you start applying this kind of reasoning to see if, if that's possible. And then you begin to realize that what you feel is something made up. Yeah? Made up in, 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 a, in a way of being uh, fabricated by afflictions, <laughs> fabricated by ignorance. So 28, if they are unproduced and non-existent, then whatever wish they have, okay, so the so if we say that the self and the primal substance are unproduced and non-existent, then whatever wish they have to produce, harm will also not produce, because something non-existent cannot produce something. Since this self would permanently apprehend its object, it follows that it would never cease to do so. So if the self were permanent, then when you say, I see the cup, then you would always see the cup. You could never see the table because a permanent self doesn't change. Furthermore, if the self were permanent, it would clearly be devoid of action like space. Again, something permanent cannot act. So even if it met with other conditions, how could its unchanging nature be affected? So that's why a permanent God cannot become impermanent to create and then go back to being impermanent. And same with the self. Okay. So even if when acted upon by other conditions, it remains as before, so the permanent self doesn't change when there's other conditions affecting it, then what actions could it do? So permanent self can't do anything. Thus, if I say that this condition acts upon a permanent self, how could the two ever be causally related? So if I'm somehow saying that there's a condition that can affect a cause, a, a permanent self, yeah, then 
they would have to be related as cause and effect. But again, that permanent self cannot act. Yeah. So then, then 31, hence, everything is governed by other factors, which in turn are governed by others. So everything that is the effect, everything that functions, was produced by causes and conditions, and those causes and conditions were produced by other causes and conditions, which were also produced by other causes and conditions. Okay. And in this way, nothing governs itself. Having understood this, I should not become angry with phenomena which are like apparitions. So apparitions appear, but there's nothing there. So we may have the feeling of a permanent self. There's nothing there. We may have a whole theology about a permanent creator, but it's like an apparition. Okay, so now we can do some questions. This idea, this feeling of a permanent self, I think you could easily have even if you weren't raised in a certain theology. So is this an innate mm-hmm. aspect of ourself? Actually, the permanent self, I don't think, is innate. Yeah. Um, It feels quite innate, doesn't it? But I think when we're focusing on that feeling of an innate permanent self, uh, that has to do more with an inherently existent self. Because an inherently existent self must be permanent. And you can refute something being permanent without refuting it being inherently existent. Like the lower schools, you know, all say that, um, you know, the, the table is impermanent, but it's inherently existent. And so definitely the non-Buddhist schools say that as well. Yeah. But it's sure in there quite deeply, isn't it? It seems like it's part of self-grasping ignorance, which is innate, right? Yeah. But it seems that way because an inherently existent self would have to be permanent. But being permanent is not the definition of an inherently existent self. Yeah. But so that comes down to the four, um, you know, distorted conceptions. When I asked, I've asked that question, are those four innate or are they uh, acquired? Yeah. Mostly the response I've gotten, they, they don't say they're acquired. They just say they're not innate. <laughs> yeah. So... uh you know, I think what, what you're getting is an inherent grasping at an inherent existence then will give rise to grasping at permanence uh, in some phenomena, not in other phenomena. Yeah. For the idea that there's this 
essence out of which everything is made, I think you can find that in science when they say everything is made out of atoms and molecules or energy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very popular one. Everything is energy. Yeah. And then I was also thinking a more Buddhist sounding idea is saying everything is made out of mind. And would some schools oh. actually agree with that? No, but there, when it say things are created by mind, it doesn't mean that they manifest out of mind. Yeah, mind is not like some kind of primal substance and it comes. What when we think things when it says things are created by mind, it means that the mind creates karma and the karma influences, for example, the physical world. It doesn't create the physical world. It influence because you have the laws. Buddhism doesn't deny the laws of, of biology and chemistry and these things. We don't say the mind created those laws. Those are natural laws. Yeah. But the ma- but the karma influences them. Uh, so that's why one way the mind creates uh, you know, influences or creates. Another way is uh, our present state of mind, how we look at things, creates our experience, how we experience those things. But it's not like, you know, the mind, there's some, you know, energy substance that you can't put your finger on, but somehow it produces other things. Not like that. Yeah. Here's that metaphor, it's not the flag that moves, it's your mind that moves. <laughs> that kind of gives the flavor that, oh, it's all your mind. Everything is just your mind. And Yeah, no, that's a wrong way of inter- interpreting the, that thing. What it's meaning is our mind focuses on the external thing of the flag moving, but it's really our mind distracting itself by going to an external object and getting all entangled with it. Okay. So the the mind is moving. Why is that flag moving? You know, why is it going up and down? Why is it going this and that? Okay, it's the mind, you know, who put that flag anywhere? You know, oh, it's a Confederate flag. Oh, no, we'd better take that flag down, you know, before our neighbors see it. Or we like that Confederate flag. We want our neighbors to see it. It's, you know, the mind is moving. So the Chittimachans wouldn't say that everything, since the seeds all come from the same place, yeah. they, they wouldn't the, say that? No. That everything's mind? No, the, this, this Chittimachans are not saying everything is physically made of mind. It's saying that the perceiving consciousness and the perceived object have the same substantial cause. Okay? Because we usually see, okay, there's me here and there's the book there, and there's no relationship between us. And the Chittimajans say, well, you know, why are you perceiving a book? Why does this thing appear to you as a book and not as a rectangular box? Yeah, well, because there's seeds in the mind 
that create the perceiving mind and the the objects that's being perceived. Okay. And there's many different kinds of seeds in the mind. Yeah. Is something inherently existent present in a portion of time which is somehow connected to the next portion of time? Or is that just grasping at a permanence? Uh, that's grasping at inherent existence and grasping at permanence. And that does, is not the way things are. Yeah. Can it be said that the mind is moving if it doesn't exist physically? Because it doesn't mean physically moving. It means the attention is moving. But that's it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the whole point here is, again, you know, look at how we think of causality. Yeah. Do we think that there's some immaterial thing that everything is made out of? And uh, also, this is related in modern times. We also have this idea of one cosmic mind. Yeah. You ever heard of the one cosmic mind? And so all people are born out of that one cosmic mind. And when we die, we go back into that cosmic mind. Okay, so there's that theory. Is It's quite, I think, popular in new, some New Age kinds of things. Yeah, but again, if you examine that, it, it you know, it, you it's very difficult to to for it to hold up to logical reasoning. Okay, because, well, yeah. I mean, if it, if it's a cosmic mind, and if it's a permanent cosmic mind, yeah, then how's it going to produce? Yeah, and especially because what it produces is something uh, that changes. Our minds change. Or you have to say our minds are also permanent. But, you know, that isn't the way things are either. It's very clearly our minds change. Yeah. But, and then at the end, our minds dissolve back into that one cosmic mind. What made the cosmic mind produce our mind? What made it produce it the way it is? Must have been influenced by other conditions. Is a cosmic mind influenced by other conditions? No, it's the one originator and it's the one who makes the decisions about what it's going to produce. So it's not influenced by other conditions. Okay, see, it, it gets all tangled up like this. But um, when you're having your review classes on Pramnavartika, you know, this is... Uh, she, uh, she's probably reviewing the syllogism, uh, showing that the Buddha is a, is a reliable guide. But this is the section before that. So not last year's teachings, but the year before. Okay. And, yeah. okay, let's do, uh, so we did 31, didn't we? Hence, everything is governed by other factors, which in turn are governed by others. And in this way, nothing governs itself. 
But I want something in charge. I want someone in charge of this universe. I can't, the idea that it's everything bouncing off of everything else is so unorganized and so, I can't stand it. There's got to be some organization and uniformity and someone who makes the decisions. Okay, so you see how our mind, at an emotional level, yeah, there's an emotional need to, to believe in this, uh, this kind of thing. And then we develop a theology which supports it. But Shantideva's conclusion is, having understood that nothing governs, governs itself, I should not become angry with phenomena that are like ap uh, 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 apparitions. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then verse 32 says, if everything is unreal like an apparition, then who is there to restrain what anger? So if there's nobody who decides to be angry, who's going to decide to restrain my anger? Yeah. So there's got to be somebody that decides to get angry, and there's got to be somebody that decides to restrain my anger. Otherwise, if there's no person to, to restrain my anger, I'm just going to be angry forever. So this is what the, you know, the refutation, how people try and refute the Buddhists. Okay. And Shantideva says, it would not be appropriate because conventionally I must maintain that independence upon restraining anger, the stream of suffering is severed. So if I, I say that it's not possible to create to restrain anger because there's no uh, independent agent who will do it, then there's no way to attain liberation because my anger creates suffering and there's no way to stop the anger, so there's no way to stop suffering. Okay? And if there's no way to stop suffering... I should, you know, there's no way to get out of samsara. But we know there's some way to get out of samsara because we've studied emptiness and we know Nagarjuna's um, refutation, how, no, not refutation, how Nagarjuna establishes the four truths and establishes the Buddha Dharma Sangha based on the reasoning that negates inherent existence. Yeah, I think it's, is it in chapter 24? I can't remember, but it's in, I think it's in, uh, I put it in Buddhism, One Teacher, Many Traditions, and it's probably... And it's in another volume, too. I can't remember which one. Maybe, yeah, yeah, it's in a, maybe two or, no, 
not in two. We went through two, didn't we? So maybe three, maybe four. It's not in five or six. Okay. So that whole thing. So, so yeah, there, there is a way that we can... Uh, there is a way to restrain our anger. Even there is, there is no identifiable person, independent person, permanent person, who is restraining the anger. In fact, if there were a permanent, independent, inherently existent person that we say restrain the anger, that person would be unable to restrain anger because something that is inherently existent does not depend on any other factor. And to go from being angry to restraining anger entails change, and to change means that it's got to be influenced by other factors, okay, other conditions. So this, what this does is this brings up a whole different way of thinking of the self and feeling the self. And it's kind of uncomfortable, okay? Because if I ask you, do you feel like you exist only because the causes for you existed? Is that your feeling of self? That I exist only because the causes for me existed? No, we don't feel like we're, we exist only because there's causes for us. We are there, fully present, created out of seemingly nothing. Yeah? There's this permanent, independent me that's got to exist because it's the basis of everything. And if you say that, you know, I'm only produced by causes and conditions, and if one of those causes and conditions were not present, then I wouldn't be who I am. That, that's too much. I cannot accept that. Because there is this real me in there. But, actually, if our eyes are open, or if our mind is open, moment by moment, who we are is changing. Yeah. We're being influenced by everything. Yeah, every small sense perception, every small thing, idea, feeling that floats through the mind, all these things are influencing us. And all these things are, don't say, oh, I'm going to influence this person. All these things, you know, our feelings, our emotions, all these arise due to other causes and conditions. And there's no one in charge of the whole thing. 
There's got to be somebody in charge. Yeah? Just like we say, every company has to have a CEO. And we think the CEO, once you have the corner office, you know, you are permanent and independent. You make, you, the whole company, the running of the whole company depends on you. No, it doesn't. CEO does not run the whole company. Yeah. Every single person who works in that company is running that company. And the CEO is only the CEO because everybody else acknowledges him as the CEO. And because he has certain tasks yeah, assigned. But that person isn't the the heart of the country, the company. When when you say you know say the name of a company, we say Google, okay, or Facebook. Facebook's the new demon, okay. Yeah, Facebook. What in the world? Analyze what is Facebook? It feels so solid. The government wants to control it. Okay? And and Biden met with all these business leaders yesterday, you know, to get ideas about, you know, how to raise money for the, the new tax kind of thing. So, but all these CEOs, you know, do they have full control over the company? No. All the workers have to do is say, we're quitting. And the CEO is out of a job, too. Okay. So the more you look, there's, there's, you know, it's all just causes and conditions coming together. There's nothing you can pinpoint and control. Yeah. And if that leaves you feeling a little bit weird, that's good. Because it's shaking our idea of an independent self. Yeah. And we want that idea shaken because that idea of an inherent independent self is the root of all of our problems. Okay. So with that... We will cl- conclude. And if you want to read more about the Samkhya's, <laughs> yeah, or there's several other non-Buddhist philosophies that you can read about too. Yeah. So who's deciding to chant? We're all going to chant. We all know we're going to chant right now. Who's deciding to chant? Yeah. Can you ev- can you identify even what one mental factor or one primary mind that alone is going to lead us to chanting? Yeah. So very interesting to watch this. Mm-hmm.